0: everyone. Welcome back to Science on Trial and Error. I'm Kasia Kuzmicz kowalska and I'm excited to introduce you to yet another amazing scientist. But before we get to that, I'd like to apologize for the delay with the premiere of this episode. Some unforeseen health issues have kept me preoccupied and I needed to take care of this first. Thank you for being patient and let me reassure you, this episode was worth the wait. Today, my guest is Laura Burnett. She comes from England, and that is where she obtained her master's degree in natural sciences at the UCL. Laura currently pursues a PhD at IST Austria in the group of Max Josch, and she's studying how visual information is processed in the brain to control instinctive behaviors. But besides being a neuroscientist, Laura is also an artist. She is creating incredible pieces of art using different media and she contributes her creative side to science communication projects. Make sure to check her Instagram to get a sneak peek of her works. I absolutely adore this quirky girl and she has always inspired me with her strength, positive attitude and outgoing personality. I'm very grateful that we had a chance to talk honestly about the ups and downs of her scientific life. We also had a fair share of laughs during the recording. She's definitely the biggest David Attenborough fan you'll ever meet. Please welcome Laura Burnett. Hello, Laura. Thank you for accepting the invitation to be the guest on my podcast. No, it's great. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. I'm very excited. I was thinking to to have a sort of a, a starting point in the discussion, which should be quite easy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, what is it that you listen to at work, whether it's music or something else?
1: Oh, God, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it depends what I'm doing. Like, if I'm doing a very monotonous task in the lab or, um, or something that I'm quite used to by now, like surgeries or something, then podcasts or the Hamilton soundtrack <laughs> which I went through a phase <laughs> of just listening to that on repeat which is quite embarrassing but it's wonderful um but normally podcasts yeah. okay okay
0: um so how about we we talk first about your current work mm-hmm. you're a PG student in the group of Max Josh who works on neuroetiology. is mm-hmm. that the word yep, that's it um so can you explain maybe
1: a bit what are you working on and what is the group working Mm -hmm. on so yeah so max named the group neuroethology, which is basically just the neuroscience of behavior which is how the brain is able to control and mediate different behaviors um and in our group people work with both flies and and mice so we look at two different animal species and we're specifically interested in how vision like visual information is used to drive behaviors Mm -hmm. yeah we use a lot of different tools and like the behaviour that I'm actually interested in is uh, a visually evoked defensive behaviour. Okay. Um, So it's basically, I'm interested in the circuitry in the brain that is involved in how an animal, for instance, a small prey animal, like a mouse, um, if it sees a dark shadow (laughs) overhead, which could be like an overhead predator, an owl or a bird that's about to approach and attack it, how they process that visual stimulus of the shadow as a predator and then how they mediate some sort of defensive behaviour, be it freezing or fleeing to an escape, like doing an escape to a shelter or something like that. So yeah. is this an innate behavior Mm-hmm, yes exactly, so it doesn't need to be learned. Yeah. And it's interesting because humans, like if you, human babies especially, like if you show them a looming, basically a dark expanding dot which looks as if it's coming towards you, yeah. like they show this sort of reflexive. Oh, really? So yeah, like, it, it could be evolutionary conserved? No, definitely, yeah. Oh, really and flies also show the same like, jumping behavior away from a looming stimulus. So you have an
0: environmental, like, experimental setup to, yes. to track this, mm-hmm. so you definitely track the motion of the, mm-hmm. of the animal. Yeah. Um, do you have a way to also track their, their brains? and, like, Mm -hmm. record
1: what is happening in their brains? Mm -hmm. So at the moment, I do um, the recording in the brain in what we call, like, a head fixed situation. So the Mm -hmm. mouse, it can run, but it's sort of fixed in one position. It's running on a ball, Uh and we have this, like, screen around, completely surrounding it, where we can present the stimuli. So it's sort of like a planetarium-esque situation (laughs) for mice. Okay. Um, It's an immersive...
0: It's semi like virtual, virtual reality, virtual kind reality kind of situation. situation,
1: okay um, Not quite that fancy, but still it's cool Um, and with that I use what's called a silicon probe Okay, so it's a very very small um, probe which has 32 channels which record neural activity like extra outside of the the cells, I'm not like recording patching or anything like that um, so we can basically listen into what yes. lots of cells in the brain are doing at the same time, um and I'm looking at one particular brain area called the superior colliculus, which is cool. It's a highly evolutionary conserved region. It's found in all vertebrate species. Um, humans have it as well. And it's, it's a really cool brain area um, because it receives input directly from the eye. So it has direct sensory input. People debate about it, but it's like, it could potentially be the most important visual brain area for okay. the mouse. Um, in humans, it seems it's less important because the... Like, another visual pathway has sort of taken over um, but it's predominantly involved in these sort of innate and intrinsic like the fast reactions exactly very okay. fast reactions because it has this direct input mm-hmm. from from the retina then it sort of it also receives information from other senses like touch and um, auditory information oh, that's interesting. and all of these senses are like retinotopically mapped so uh-huh. this means that like the position at which the inputs from the eye terminate in this brain region are arranged in the same positioning as the visual field. It's sort of layered like, a, like an onion. <laughs> so the visual input comes into the top layer, and mm-hmm. then you have these sort of inputs from different sensory modalities coming in in the same ordered way, like in aligned with the visual scene, but in deeper layers, and in the in the very deepest layers, you have motor output layers. And then it has these motor cells that then send information to other regions of the brain and the spinal cord, which say, okay, you need to move your eye or your entire body to this location. One of the first things that people realize that this brain area is involved in is like orienting towards okay. objects or away from objects. But
0: Also your experimental setup sounds really cool. <laughs> so I guess it requires also a bit of like engineering kind of aspect to your oh work. Yeah. Was it really hard to...
1: It to was, get into this this part of the work? It was definitely new. I definitely hadn't done anything like this before. Um, and also because the, the questions that I was asking and my ideas changed so much over time that mm-hmm. I think I've built like five different experimental setups like all along the same lines but you know I needed it to be slightly bigger in this case and I needed this to be slightly different and for instance I have a projector that projects the, the visual stimuli yes. onto the arena You know, first I had three projectors because I had a a domed roof and I wanted it to be like a complete, like an actual planetarium. And then I realized that that wasn't working, and then I had to change to a box. And then, um, yeah, my god, that was really trial and error. That was, but it was really, really fun. Um, And I'm very happy with the setup I have now. And now I've made it so that it's very uh, modular in a way, which I think is very useful. If you're ever, you know. Planning on building an experimental like behavioral setup, make it as modular and as adjustable as as possible because you You never know. Yeah, you never know and. It's been very fun learning about that. So I think uh, what I also
0: read on your website is that you're uh, using optogenetics in
1: your experiments, right? right? So I'm also trying to... It has been shown that if you activate the cells in this deepest layer of the Mm -hmm. superior colliculus, if you activate these deep motor cells, the animal, so they did this in small, like a mouse or something, will move either its head or its entire body or its eyes to that location in space, depending on how strongly you activate it. I've been trying to do that in my mice because, in a way, it's... If you use a strong enough activation of the cells, it's sort of... um, Um, Reproducing? Yeah, reproducing the effect of the looming. Then the animal will think that there is an object there, there. and then they should behave accordingly. Which is what we see, actually, which is quite cool. So you actually see that
0: the cells really reproduce the position in Mm -hmm. space. But it's interesting because, you know, um, well, Josman was just here talking about the grid cells and, you know, how mm-hmm. how the brains can encode the spatial position. Mm-hmm. And it's like a cell that corresponds to a position in space. Yeah. And now you're seeing this in a different region, but it's kind of com- parable situation in a way like that the, the exact cell corresponds to a, well like a area in
1: the in the retina which would correspond to position right exactly I think that's the thing it's not uh, because I think in the hippocampus and what she's talking about is more um, egocentric position in the environment whereas yes, this is more like, Look objects and their position within the visual scene. Within the yeah, within the Um, visual picture, like the retina. Exactly, like retina-centric. This is but it's really cool, isn't it? Yeah, and like um, it's really interesting from a developmental perspective as well, which is not what we study in the lab. But lots of people have studied this before, like how the visual input in the superior colliculus then helps with the development of the maps underneath in the Mm -hmm. different senses. So like they've found that like if you disturb the the inputs of the retinal cells to the top layers of the superior yeah. colliculus then the layers below receive input from other modalities they are also sort of messed up and misaligned so would people that have um retina derived blindness mm-hmm. have problems with this region do you know so that's sort of what they what people think. Uh-huh. I mean, it's hard to tell because in humans, like I said, it's people don't think it's as it's important. It's a different important. Yeah. Yeah, okay, because, so the way that I try and explain it to people is that, so the common um, way that people think about how vision is processed in the brain it goes from the retina to a region in the thalamus, which is in the middle of the brain, called yep. the lateral geniculate nucleus, and then that sends the information onto the visual cortex. Yeah. And in humans, this is the predominant visual pathway. And then in the cortex, there's a lot of processing of visual information going on. Um, and this is more like conscious visual yes. information. Whereas the superior colliculus, it seems, is more to do with subconscious yeah, visual just information. Yeah, like really fast reactions, yeah, there, so the ones that are... If someone throws a ball at yeah. your face and then you sort of try and dodge to avoid it, this is more like your superior colliculus is like being like, whoa, like, like alert, alert. Yeah. a coming at your face, or, like, there's a car gonna <laughs> hit you, or something, you know, you know, the mouse is being, like, oh, there's a, like, predator coming to attack me.
0: Interesting that still the humans kind of maintain it, no longer, like, there's so many predators against yeah. humans, so I guess you could expect it to, mm-hmm. to kind
1: of decay a bit, like, yeah. the, this sort of information processing But but people think it's also to do with, like, emotional processing. Also, importantly to add, is that the superior colliculus develops before the cortex even in humans. Okay. So there's a lot of research that's been done showing that the superior colliculus is also needed to develop visual processing in the cortex already um, during like already. Yeah, development. Yeah, exactly. I see, I see. Um, which is really cool. But there's also a condition called blind sight in humans. Blind sight is basically when people that are um, blind basically mm-hmm. they can't consciously see anything and it's normally due to a, like a problem with their visual cortex. Yes. Um and these individuals, if you put them in a corridor with obstacles, they will say that they can't see anything, but they can avoid the obstacles. Oh yeah, know. but then if there was a different region that processes this kind of Exactly, so it's just like unconscious visual processing. And people think that this could be because the superior colliculus is still functioning and that they can subconsciously still see things. I love it. It's a really cool area. I think it was... It's great. um, Yeah. It's been a sort of a little bit neglected, I would say, for a few years. I think people have become very obsessed with the cortex and now it's making a bit of a comeback. So... No, it's good. It's
0: good. And your work sounds really exciting and, like, things are working well and... I mean, ups and downs. (laughs) Now, yeah, I like to talk uh, to my guests about... Um, about how how and when or where their their love for science started, mm-hmm. and I think everybody has a very different story. Yeah, because your parents, I, I don't think they are really like science involved, right? And no. is anybody in your in your home actually a scientist, or are you the only black sheep in a family who went
1: into the direction of, of the lab? Oh, I love this idea, of black sheep. <laughs> um, I don't, yeah, I didn't know a single scientist. Like my parents are definitely not. Um, into science at all I didn't know any scientists I mean I grew up in a small village so people had normal jobs and I think it wasn't until I got to university that I realized that you know you can do science for a living like that was an actual job um because when I was a kid like even at school I thought ah if you're going to do science you're going to be a doctor like yeah oh yeah that was you know a doctor or
0: In I didn't even family. think
1: I knew like you could do like I mean I was like oh maybe you can be like an astrophysicist or something like that, but um it was <laughs> I definitely was very naive about things but um but I always loved animals and I always loved nature. Um so that was one thing. Like I mean I lived in the countryside so I spent I spent a lot of time just mm-hmm. in the garden and in woods and like picking up bugs and um planting like apple pips and then I grew trees and then they got infected with a mold and then you know I just loved all of that. Um, so the curiosity was definitely there. It was definitely there. It was very wild I would say, um and unrefined. Was it also in part
0: driven by the by Sir David Attenborough's Oh my god for um, sure. Adventures and, and programs? It, definitely. I think that was So did this love start
1: really with Early david on? i think yes okay but, um yeah anyone like uh, as, as you know i think um, anybody who knows you i'm a huge fan of of david attenborough documentaries i mean the bbc nature like department in general um because i was actually born in bristol where mm-hmm. the bbc nature like hq at least they were there i don't know whether they still are there but i hope so they're still there um And as a child, I was like, ah, one day I'm going to work for BBC Nature. I think that was my first dream. I think I was like, I'm going to be David Attenborough. Um, Not quite sure how that works, but you know what I mean? I was like, but again, I had no idea how someone ever gets to be, like how that happens and what sort of, I think I didn't really think about the future that much as a child. I was just sort of doing what I like. I remember having to do a project when I was in like year eight, I think so maybe like 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. And we had to choose a a natural history project. And I lived next door to it. Yeah, I know. Fun. (laughs) I lived next door to this, like, small wooded area. So for, like, I think it was, like, two weeks, my dad got up really early before work. And me and him just went and sat (laughs) in this wood, (laughs) sitting there. It was such, like, a me and my dad situation. Sat on two, like, (laughs) camping chairs, watching. Like, and we saw a deer. We saw some really cool birds. I just, like, wrote down what we saw and noted that's that's really committed and like that seems like a good
0: start to be like a proper um, yeah reporter for (laughs) BBC Nature you know you get this patience to practicing the patience
1: to 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 watch and observe animals in their natural habitat I honestly think that most people in the UK that are into biology have 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 been been inspired inspired, at least in part by the BBC Nature documentaries because they're they were incredible. Like They yes. still are incredible. I, I agree. I
0: mean, I think it's a worldwide phenomenon, but of course, we were... Like, you know, we knew these documentaries in Poland, mm-hmm. but we didn't really know David Attenborough so well mm-hmm. because in Poland, there was, like, another yeah. person that was reading the whole background. Mm-hmm. So So we all knew those. They were, like, super exciting, but only after, actually, I met you, I realized, like, okay, there's, like... <laughs> This special person that is actually behind all of them. And yeah. it was really cool to, to learn. So, your parents, even though they weren't into science, like they weren't
1: doing science, they were actually very supportive of, um, of yeah. you doing your, your own thing I think they, I mean my parents are incredibly supportive like they think I, I think I, I'm a bit crazy probably um but they love me for my mom once got me this badge that says I'm not weird I'm gifted which I think sums <laughs> up what my family think about me um but no they I think yeah they were always they just let me do whatever I wanted to do and my dad was always in the garden I mean he, he also grew up in a very rural area so we had like a vegetable patch and we used to I like to think that I used to help him. Probably, if you asked him, I was more of a hindrance. But um... you were from a small, yeah, like town, village—really village? not a town. Okay,
0: <laughs> and then you—you you went to school nearby. Mm-hmm. Where your like classes at school focused on like going into science direction, or were they more like general education? Like, Ooh. did you have to choose the direction in
1: which you want to go at some point, or? I mean, so my primary school was just a very small local village school. Mm-hmm. We had 13 people in my year. So oh, wow. it was, yeah, really. so it wasn't really, it was very general. I think they just, I mean, it was a great school and I loved my primary school. Um, and especially, so my headmistress actually taught me maths. Mm-hmm. And I, I think she, like now when I look back, I'm like, she was such a an inspiration and sort of, she really pushed me forward, even from such a young age. Like, oh, that's great. Um, I always look back and think, wow, I could have could have gone so differently yes um yeah and then I moved to like a a bigger school for for secondary school and it was um it was an all-girls school but it was very academic so we had to like take an exam to get in and stuff um whatever you wanted to do they mm-hmm. would you could focus on whatever you desire um yeah which was cool I so mean, were they, you still into maths at that point or I mean so for a levels for as levels I took Maths, further maths, biology, chemistry and Spanish I see So I tried to keep it broad because mm-hmm. I had no idea what I wanted to do um. So then you you moved to London
0: for your studies, yes. right? You were studying at UCL Yep And what was the actual, like... Course.
1: Yeah, so what was the main course? So I did natural sciences, because as you'll discover, like, a theme of my life is that I didn't want to narrow it down, so I just kept... Amazing. It was actually my friend's mum, who was like, oh, Laura, there's a course called natural sciences, where you can just keep doing all all of the sciences, and I was like, this is ideal. Um, So was it a a joint, like, bachelor's and master's program? Yeah, this was a joint, like, MSI thing, so it was three years of bachelor's and one year of master's. Um, and basically in the first year you start doing all of the sciences and then you have to, like, pick, like, drop a few for the second year and then in the third year you, like, specialize and in the masters you just do. Like, I specialized in neuroscience for my masters. Um, so it wasn't really always
0: neuroscience in, in your head oh. as, a, as a future path? No, definitely not. Neuroscience happened sort of completely by chance. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So was it the... Uh, because you also went to, to Melbourne, yes, right?
1: Yes, was. It was like a research like internship I know I did my entire third year in Melbourne okay. so okay. I applied to the study abroad scheme mm-hmm. um, because I don't know I just always had I mean now I'm living abroad as well so I obviously had something in me that um, was always really interested in living abroad um, and I think because I did Spanish like I continued doing the Spanish when I went to university as well I'm going to go yeah. somewhere where I can speak Spanish it's going to be great I'm going to improve that and do some science and it'll be great but um, And then obviously my university were like, the only places you can go are places that speak English. And I was like, (laughs) excellent, cool. Um, And then I I just happened to, I looked at what courses were available, and Melbourne seemed to have a really good, um, like, offer a lot of the courses that I was interested in. Off I went for my third year. Had a wonderful year. And that was actually, yeah, how I first got into neuroscience, really.
0: Oh, really? So the the project really changed your, like... (laughs)
1: started your your love yeah. for neuroscience so basically what, what happened was um I love Australia and I think I mean it was amazing but they were definitely a lot more relaxed with attending lectures or at least with this <laughs> one course that I went to people were very relaxed um developmental neurobiology I okay. think was the course um and I think I just took it because I needed an extra credit. And I was like, oh yeah, it looks sort of nice. Like, oh, I'll, I'll try that one. And then this one lecture I turned up and it was just me <laughs> in the lecture. I mean, it was a small course, there were only like 30 of us. Um, and it was this really nice woman at the front who was really funny and she was like, looks like it's just you and me today. And I was like, okay. Um, and um, she was doing interneuron migration in the cortex. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And she was telling me about how, when, how interneurons migrate in the brain and how the place in the brain that they come from looks like the Batman symbol. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> um, and, and we got chatting and she was like, oh, well, you should come see my lab if you want. And I was like, that would be great. So I went, but that was like my first ever experience in... in the laboratory. In the laboratory okay. sort of thing. And then I got in contact with other labs at the University of Melbourne to be like, oh, would you take me for a small bachelor's? research project and this woman called um, professor Heather Young like wrote back to me and she was amazing like I loved my time in the lab and they were working on um the gut nervous system the enteric nervous uh nervous system again I had no idea how it how the job worked like what people do in their day-to-day time and it was really cool seeing like oh so people like they meet they discuss ideas they come up with like suggestions for experiments they do them they present them you know it was i love how random it seems like you know
0: like everything is so random there's there's so much like lack on your path to put these right people there to so that you can be actually because you know you have really a huge passion for science but the thing is like it was like so not focused at the beginning right you were just like interested in everything but like Mm -hmm. you didn't even know what is out there so then you were sold for, like, nervous nervous system.
1: Yeah, and I was really obsessed with the gut nervous system. So then I went back and did my master's and um, got in contact with a group at UCL that were working on the gut nervous system. Um, and I still love it, to be fair. But then I got sidetracked and ended up in the brain. I think I'm very lucky because I've enjoyed everything that I've done and I'm just sort of continuing with my rolling through great scientific adventures but
0: i think this comes also from from your like openness and like because you know some people they 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 find something that they really like and they just like very persistently go in this direction and with your case it seems like you were just always so curious about so many things Mm -hmm. that it just makes it also easier for you to go into the new things like you are like very open to the new opportunities and it's it's super i think it's very important in a scientist like Mm -hmm. of course you can be very focused but i think it's good to to have yeah your mind open to like a new region or a new method or it's just
1: it gives you it can bring you a lot of joy and a lot of surprises no definitely i mean i i'm constantly reading like i love reading popular science books outside of my field just because it's sort of like when I recently read this book Entangled Life by mm-hmm. Merlin Sheldrick, um on fungi and then I just I was like oh my god what am I doing I need to work on <laughs> fungi like that's just the coolest thing ever right now and then I was like no Laura you're doing a PhD in well, neuroscience. Well that's fine you can still you can yeah, still I go know. in this direction.
0: So you, you did your master's working still on, on, on gut enteric system yeah, exactly. uh, in, at UCL, mm-hmm. at the Institute of Child Health. Were you still interested in, in
1: like development, or was it more disease-related research? I mean, it was, it was both. So I mean, the, the group was really cool like, in the way that it was set up. because So the Institute is linked with the Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And so our group was actually co-run by a clinician and a nice. researcher. Yeah. Like, we were getting direct information from the, the doctor that was doing the surgeries on the children and stuff, and we were, um, specifically, like, the group were looking at this disease called Hirschsprung's disease, which okay. is basically where the nervous system in the gut doesn't fully form. During um, the, the yeah, pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's lethal in babies. Like, they have to treat it very quickly. Like, if you don't treat it, then it, it yes. is lethal. Um, so the group were looking into, like, okay, well, how is the how is the nervous system developing and we were looking at, you know, how is it colonizing the gut, um, because the gut is already formed and then the nervous system cells have to like sort of migrate in and Mm -hmm. and colonize. Um, And lots of, yeah, they were doing lots of really interesting things with like stem cell therapies and things like that, so.
0: So you were like really into this topic and Mm -hmm. then you, you, were you looking for for PhDs or were you not so sure whether you want to do a PhD,
1: how did it work? So I think so I I it seems a long time ago now I'm sort of <laughs> But um so I was doing the masters and I was really I really loved my group but I think they were like I sort of got told that you know funding was not secure and stuff and that maybe they wouldn't be able to offer me a position and stuff so I was like okay I will you know do an internship and my idea was that maybe I still wasn't 100% sure being me what I wanted to do and so (laughs) I was like I will dabble around try and see if I can get different like maybe a technician placement somewhere and see if I can um try out things in different labs and see what I was interested in and then I, I found this internship scheme for IST Austria where we now are um, and I applied. I was just like, "Why not? Like, let's let's give it a go." Um, and I was really interested because it was like a new place, and there was lots of interesting science going on, and there were, you know, and um, yeah. And then I got accepted. So two weeks after I finished my last exam at UCL, I off I went to Austria for the first time in my life, and was like, "Sure," speaking no German. Um, always just, you know, chat. Yeah, like why go. not? Um, Crazy and then it decision. was really fun. I had a great time. Um, and then they asked if I wanted to stay for the PhD, and here I am. Yeah. So you were you were doing a
0: project um, in the group of Simon mm-hmm. Hippenmeyer, who had yeah, who is working on this very um, very so, novel technique. Yes, uh, called Madam Mosaic analysis with double markers. Yes, yes. in
1: the cortex. So. How, how did you like it? How did you like this experience? I mean, I think I was, again, exceedingly lucky because, um, so I arrived and I was working with a really great postdoc called Rob. Um, and Rob was basically at the end of this project that he was doing and he was wrapping up and he basically just needed some help. And I was there very willing and very keen and was like, yeah, this sounds great. And we just, we get on, got on really well together and he was a really good, Supervisor and stuff and it was great. It just seemed very dynamic like things were going. We were doing stuff I could learn all about this new genetic technique. Yeah, so it was nice It was nice that there was a lot of trust and they I learned a lot during that internship
0: um, So it was
1: a summer internship, right? Yes, and then right after you jumped into a PhD Yes, it was three months. I believe uh-huh. it was uh-huh. okay. Yeah, three months and then, yeah, and then I finished in... That's crazy. September. T- uh, yeah, I started. I think I went home for a week to graduate, and then I came back, and then... Yeah, I know. I, I also think... Uh, yeah. It's I have, like, my dad's voice in my head just being like, don't lose momentum, which, you know, reflecting now, I'm like, you know, sometimes it's okay to lose momentum. But I think so. But um,
0: I, I think, I mean, again...
1: Yeah. It was not planned, really,
0: but somehow turned out to to be really good I guess right yeah okay your your studies at UCL had this period of being very interdisciplinary at the beginning and here again you had a lot of interdisciplinarity (laughs) in the first year yes um and also there were rotations did you actually like the fact that there were rotations
1: was it was it fun for you yeah it was really fun and I mean I think that was um a big part in why I I decided to join because to be honest, I felt very young mm-hmm. when I first arrived, like, um, because a lot of places in Europe, you know, they have four-year undergrads and then two-year masters, and people... So how
0: old were you when
1: you were starting the PhD? I was 22. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah 22. that's quite young, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I mean, I had done things in the lab but you know I think for a PhD like I was like okay you need to commitment it's a long-term commitment but also like you know you need to come up with your project you need to and I was just like my god I'm not experienced enough for this you know imposter syndrome hitting hard and I was like and so at least I was very like okay well I have the rotation system if I don't find anything or if it's not what I want I can you know I can leave and look for something else um and then I found something that I
0: like. So <laughs> that's great. No, yeah, no, I think it's um, good. Uh, did you stay though within the
1: neuroscience? I think so. Yes, I went to um, the sixth group.
0: So oh yes, so you did cell migration
1: different. stuff. But that's sort of similar to how the gut nervous, nervous system, system yeah. develops. Yeah, exactly. But that's um, good. So you've explored a bit outside no it was really nice also I never worked with cell culture before
0: but also you never worked with behavior and now suddenly here you were doing like starting a project in behavior yeah so how how did it work you decided to join because your rotation project was interesting but then as you said you had to develop your own idea
1: but I think that yeah the idea was to be honest the idea was was difficult um I mean, the main selling point for me and what really like, I was like, wow, this is really cool was I sort of got won over by systems neuroscience. Um, and I loved the the techniques and I don't know, there's something about seeing neural activity, like activity in the brain. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And I just felt I had so much to learn, like, um, like from the rotation that I did with Max. I learned so much. We were building what I was... We were building. It's a very loose definition. <laughs> Max was building, and I was sort of supervising and handing him screwdrivers and stuff. Um, the two-photon microscope for the lab. Yeah. It was, yeah, again, something that... I just loved it because I felt like it was an incredibly multidisciplinary part of neuroscience you know you have you're sort of engineering things and building things there's still the genetics like there's the animal behavior there's the viruses that you need to use there's so much involved um so the the aspect of of just still being able to
0: learn so much was also important to you to kind of just develop more and like grow in your project as well definitely um
1: because i think And I still think it now, like, I'm really glad that I've learned all these techniques because I think you can apply them to many different aspects of science. I mean, definitely different Mm -hmm. aspects of neuroscience. Um, And, you know, if I want to go back to gut nervous system, it's always cool to have people that know how to record in different things, you know. Yes, definitely. And I think I feel a lot more confident now trying new things. So exactly, with this kind of project... A lot of
0: things may not work. Um, A lot of things didn't work. <laughs> so so was, it, was it hard for you to, to deal with this, this, the things not working? Or were you actually, like, you
1: were expecting it so you were treating it lightly? I definitely, I mean, I felt like an outsider when I started because I obviously hadn't worked in it before. Yes. So I was expecting to fail. Yet again, I think most people that sign up to do a PhD are sort of born perfectionists and have got to that position, sort of swimming their way through school and university and getting things right all the time. And you're like, Mm -hmm. yay, everything's great. You know, I just need to read this and learn this and then everything will be fine. And then you get to PhD and like, you can read and you can learn as much as you want. Like there's- It's always gonna happen. Failure, so much failure. And I think at the beginning, yeah, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, you know, I think at the beginning you sort of, you, you buff it off with your enthusiasm and you're like, it's fine, I'll just try the next, like, again, but after like months and months and when you're not sure why you're doing something and then it's like, you know, cause I changed my question like two years in, I was trying something for ages and then I, I just came to this point where I was like, this isn't going to work, like mainly because at the beginning I didn't know enough about the technique and its limitations. And then, yeah... To make an informed decision. Yeah, exactly. I sort of... I basically... I thought it could do more than it could. Yes, Um, I see. And then I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, maybe, I don't know, if I had 10 years, an infinite amount of time, and, you know, I could do something, but with the tools that were currently available and my time limitation, I was like, it's not... It's not worth it. So then I decided to follow a new avenue, and now it's... I think, I mean... it's a lot more fruitful, shall I say. I mean, sure, it sounds like yeah. the project
0: is going really well, but it takes a, a lot of courage and also a lot of determination to change the project. So how do you think you managed to to keep your motivation up? How did you deal when you were at
1: this point? Oof. No, I would just say that I, I I didn't deal very well, I think, is, is what I was... I mean, I was... Very sad. Yeah, it was very, very tough. And I think as well, you know, moving abroad is a great thing. But it's a very lonely thing as well, sure. you know. And it's, um, I don't know, I think I'm a very independent person as well. Which I think, again, a lot of PhD people are. But, you know, I mean, I think I'm sort of stubborn and proud a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. And y- you need to let that go if you're doing a PhD, I think. Because you need to... Yeah. Um, like, you need to accept... Yeah, just, Certain I think so I wasn't, weaknesses. exactly, except the weaknesses, um, but I, I definitely wasn't having a great time, um, everything was failing, and I, I just felt like a failure, you know, everything is just failure, left, right and centre, and you're just like, ugh, um, and honestly the reason that I changed the the entire project basically was... fluke a complete fluke again i'd read a paper (laughs) no way uh, yeah no actually it's yeah it is the story of my life um but i read a paper talking about how um that was speculating the role of the superior colliculus in in autism etiology Mm -hmm. um and i found it fascinating i won't you with the ins and outs of the details now, but it, it made a very a lot of like strong points. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. Like I think it, you know, it could be involved, um, you know, problems with visual attention and gaze fixation and its role in development and this and that. Um, and it was it really wasn't very looked into, like compared to cortical mechanisms and things like that, people looking at the cortex. And I just thought it was really interesting. And I was building up setup number five, I think, for my new project. Um, like, f- for a part of the old project. And I said to my boss, I was like, oh, like, have you seen this paper? Maybe this could be interesting. What if I just try it? Like, while I'm building the new setup, I can just try to get some mice from the group working on autism. Yeah. We can see. And then. Wow. And, and that's, that's how it happened. think
0: all of us who are doing a PhD we are also struggling a bit with like work-life balance mm. we start we are working really hard yeah and especially when we reach the the time when the failures begin to mm-hmm. appear and we are yeah we are kind of the, our mood goes down we are feeling like the work is the only like thing in our life it kind of brings us down and mm-hmm. I think it's something that sometimes we realize a bit too late mm-hmm. that we should really care about things outside of work to keep us going as well oh for sure uh so I wanted to ask you like what was it that kept you going and what what did you start to, to do to
1: oh to keep this balance kind of like to yeah to have something else but yeah well I don't know if you remember but um I think at the Almost the peak of my desperation with with my lab work of when nothing was working, I decided that was the perfect time to start the art club. At oh work. yes, uh, so <laughs> um, I didn't
0: realize this yes? was the moment. But... Oh yeah,
1: um, because I was—I think I was like—I need to do something else. Um, and you've always been very into art, right? You've always been doodling yeah. and drawing, and I mean, yeah, always, always been a doodler, um, like. For as long as I can remember, I've been drawing stuff. I think I was saying to my friend the other day, I remember when I think I was seven and a boy in my class bought this like A4 page of Pokemon that I had drew for like two pounds or something. And I was like, oh, that was my first commission, you know, (laughs) doing these stupid um, little cartoon doodles. But no, art has been, is something that I've always loved doing. Um, And I find it very therapeutic. I don't know I have I like doing lots of different different things like I like doodling and doing small like cartoons with pens or I like doing very like swishy colorful paintings more and, abstract yeah um I love portraits I love like landscapes of still lives so anything and sort of all mediums so I think that's like my splurging buys I always buy myself a new paintbrush or a new crayon set or something um which was really fun, but that definitely helped. And I said, like, I decided to... Actually, I didn't have the idea for the art club, but I ended up running it through another (laughs) series of weird events. Um, But I was very thankful because it was really, really fun. Um, And it was really nice to meet lots of people from work that I hadn't met before. Um, And I think, you know, it was really nice coming every other week and seeing people and just... Chatting about random things and drawing or painting or doing something together. Just not thinking about work so much, being yeah. in a different space, right? No, definitely. I mean, I also I, I always enjoyed sport and things like, I mean, I'd always go for walks. Um, I, lo- I love running mm-hmm. as well, so that was definitely very useful during stressful times. i just go out and like run <laughs> anywhere around <laughs> Vienna. And then just friends. I mean, now it's a bit difficult during pandemic times. Yes. But before, you know, you just go for a beer. What I find really cool is that you managed to
0: somehow connect your outside of work passion, which is the art, with with science and with what you do. Aww. And I would like to hear a bit more about this. I mean, I saw that you had a couple of different um, Project. projects. Let's call it projects. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, sure, I mean, I I don't know, because to me, my doodling, I just think of it as, like, another tool that I have, in a way, I, it's not even a tool, I don't know, but I think it's, that's always how I've taken notes and things. So does it help you think? Yes, it definitely helps me think, but so it started like that, and yeah, I never really thought people would (laughs) be that interested, but they really liked it, and then it sort of continued, and I was just doing fun things for my lab, like my boss was like, Oh, we've got a grant for this. Would you mind drawing a little logo? And I was like, Oh yeah, sure, why not? Like and then yeah, and then a friend from work got in contact about a really cool initiative um, that she was starting called the Vision wissenschafts um, initiative and it's it's cool, it's a, a sort of form of science communication and they were they're doing like YouTube videos and also on Instagram about different topics and this first one is all about vaccinations mm-hmm. and yes yeah, she reached out and was like, Oh, would you would you like to help? draw the animations and i was like oh i've never done an animation before i think it's a really cool
0: way to you know explain to people especially now in the times when the yeah. vaccinations are really mm-hmm. uh, a topic that is maybe misrepresented in media a bit it's mm-hmm. good to have something that is scientifically based to kind of help people to to understand yeah how definitely. it works
1: i think that's I, yeah it's definitely important and i think I don't know, but people don't take it as seriously. And I'm like, this is probably the most important thing, is, like, what is the point of advancing knowledge if you're only advancing the knowledge for a very small group of people? people?" Um, And honestly, I really love the aspect of taking these topics and really getting to the, the core nugget of information that you need. Because I'm always like, how would my grandma... Like, how would I explain this to someone that has no idea about the sort of complex processes and things. Um, Yeah, I think especially coming from the family where like, my family
0: is also like this. Mm -hmm. No one is really a scientist and we often get into this discussion, you know, at the table Mm. when they're like, oh, you know, we've heard about this, Mm -hmm. like, can you explain it? It's not easy Mm -hmm. to tackle this and I think this is something that is very overlooked. Mm -hmm. We should be able to communicate our work and our interest for science yeah. to people that maybe don't have as much knowledge as us and to be able to put it in a simple way I think the visual part of it is actually mm-hmm. very helpful like the drawings and the you know the way to put it so that it's maybe a metaphor that is much more understandable mm-hmm. or you know making it yeah animated so that people can really yeah maybe it reaches them much easier
1: I like to think so. it's just sort of more engaging as well I don't I think time is something that is quite it's very precious to people nowadays i love reading articles like in newspapers and stuff but mm-hmm. like i was speaking to uh, my boyfriend he was like the thing is i don't think a lot of people have time to read you know long articles or these like press releases about um, new scientific breakthroughs and stuff but everyone's like on their phone checking their instagram yeah. or you know doing something like that it's easier to digest as well yeah, and probably honestly, I, do, I think as long as you get the message across, um, that's yeah, that's the, the important, part. that's the main thing. Did you like this this kind of work
0: because this was new,
1: a bit new? Yeah, it was really cool. So what you have to know is, other than becoming David Attenborough, my second childhood dream was to be a Disney animator. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> So now you're getting there. Basically, my dreams are coming true. Um, this is amazing. Yeah.
0: I think I, I don't know if you want to talk about this room for improvement part. Like, do you have anything in mind? Or Oof. we we anyway like had pieces every now and then when we mm-hmm. were talking about
1: things that don't work so well. Mm-hmm. There are definitely many things that could change in the system. Let's just um, put it that way. But I think one thing that I saw very recently, like just the other day, was an image online of how Supplementary figures have changed over time, so it was just looking at like a standard supplementary figure in a paper from 2007, and then you know, I mean, the like five year gaps until now, and it's changed from like one graph and two images to like a 25 image oh, like subplot thing. Pages, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is just insane. And then someone commented about the fact that, um what if we did, you know, a rolling upload of research instead? And I'm sure there are many downsides to this, but it was just the first time that I'd sort of thought of that idea. I'm sure other people have brought it up at other times. Um, But it was just really interesting thinking of a completely different system where, you know, you state beforehand, like, I will be working, like, I'm planning on working on this, and then you sort of upload it. You know, like how we have progress reviews every three Mm -hmm. months, you know? You just upload where you're at with it. Again, I have no idea how like what happens with people doing the same thing and I don't know, it's, I think it's just strange how we give credit to people nowadays. Like this idea of scooping and it affects the progress
0: of science kinda negatively because mm-hmm. people just feel like there's a lot of competition mm-hmm. where actually collaboration could bring us the answers faster. Definitely. But I think the whole system is so deeply Based on the publishing, and it's—I mean, it's—it's something that is very idealistic. But I think it's—it's—it's a—it's a a beautiful idea. It's It's just interesting thought, child. (laughs) No, 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 I'm not trying to be condescending. What I mean is like, I think we as like students, we still think that this is really cool because we see that this just would help advance everything faster. We would know what. Somebody
1: else is doing, and you could. Uh, that's the thing, you could do the same thing, and you should, people and should do the could same thing. And then the you could check if this works, Exactly, yeah. because like I've done, like, you know, dabbling in many different um, techniques that I've been doing, you know, I've done things which people say should definitely work, and I'm like, it hasn't worked. And then I talk to other people, and they're like, oh, no, it also didn't work for me. And I'm like, why are people floundering around doing, spending so much time and wasting so many like uh, animals and materials and time on these things and if it, everything was just more open but this is I think yeah very
0: I, I mean I think that's also another another point that is very important but also something that I think is a, an ongoing discussion which is uh, publishing of the negative results mm-hmm. so you know um, how informative it could have been if people would just also talk about the things that didn't work yeah or like if there was like a depository repository mm-hmm. depository repository repository <laughs> i think uh where you know you could just check and maybe then you do it, but if you see that it's not working for you as well, you are kind of feeling a bit better about this, like yeah. you know like more certain, and I think there have been voices about this I'm not sure if this is really doable, but
1: that's the um, thing. I don't know it, it almost needs like very specific templates that you fill in like of like exactly what you have done. I just think because the variability mm-hmm. within obviously things change so much like there are so many variables that the you environmental need to, variables yeah, and yeah that you need to put in in order to be in order to compare across groups and things. I think
0: it may take a while but you know science is also changing a lot like as you said the supplementaries were smaller mm. but I think the reason why they are getting bigger is because people are really paying much more attention to like to to kind of have enough evidence and like they're not maybe so trusting anymore which can be considered a bad thing but on the other hand I think it makes maybe make, makes it easier for the research to be reproducible and to mm. to be properly validated which is I think something that is also important okay so last thing which I think
1: okay. is a fun
0: thing what? and because you didn't listen to the other episodes you actually don't know so I want this to be kind of a, a recurring thing and like a question that I ask to everybody because I find it very interesting to hear what people think if you had unlimited money what is the experiment that you would like to do Oof. but another question that I think I know the answer partially at least is If you could have a dinner or a tea with someone, someone who inspired you, someone who is like a cool scientist for you or someone that you just like would like to meet. So I think in your case, the answer is very easy, but maybe you have another, except for Attenborough, who I think would be your first and primary choice.
1: I mean, there are so many people that's, but did I guess well yeah of course I mean
0: (laughs) (laughs) so would you like to have like a dinner with him or would you like to go on
1: an adventure with him like how what would be your like biggest dream no I mean having maybe like a tea in the middle of the rainforest or something you know I mean in a thermos flask uh uh-huh that would be cool you know I think David's sort of getting a bit old now though so I think I I would feel bad making him walk like through the rainforest (laughs) um many things and god the experiment that's a that's a tough one infinite like
0: yeah you're like not limited by money you can have any supplies i mean something that i think would be really cool is just
1: using different model organisms Mm -hmm. um which would require lots of money to try and you know understand them but i think a mouse is is very cool, and obviously displays this behaviour of um, avoiding predators. But there are lots of lots of animals in the animal kingdom, and like insects and stuff, that have a lot more specialised behaviours. That I think, uh-huh. if we're trying to understand certain things about the brain, you know, you can sort of you have to look at where the animal is and its niche, and yes. and what it's like what it's uh, specialised for. So do you think that the predators would
0: also have some sort of responses that actually are
1: processed by superior colliculus? So, for instance, in birds, so, Mm -hmm. like, the the predators of the mice, their optic tectum is what the superior colliculus is called in birds. It's huge, like massively more important than in the mouse like they have a huge optic tectum and it's like their main visual center it, like in the mammals for instance it's seven layered the superior colliculus yes. and i think it's like 14 or something in the bird i could be wrong but it's you know a lot but is it lot. known
0: that it's like connected to their flight yeah exactly. so
1: they have a very strong like orient- Like they have great vision like birds of mm-hmm. prey they have to spot their yes. moving prey yes. from miles away, well you know a long distance away so they are definitely a lot more specialised, so I think moving to. to so birds you would like to cool. try, records from birds and. I like mean, people do. There are lots of people working on birds, but the problem is, is that you don't have the same genetic tools in birds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe you know yeah, improving the really genetic cool. tools in in bird species. I was thinking. I was talking the other day about looking at spatial navigation in amphibians, like things that work in both water and on land, and how the spatial maps. Do you are think different. that? Because of the water is much more 3D or no, that's the thing, you know what I mean? They go from like a two D environment to a three D environment. Uh-huh. Like how do they map that? But it's you can't really like record in water. That's, yeah, that's the problem. So people only do it in zebrafish because they have the they're transparent when they're larvae. Yeah, you can see.
0: Yeah.
1: See? So many problems that need to be addressed.
0: Oh. So, okay, recording from birds and then having a tea with David Attenborough
1: in a thermos flask in the rainforest and, yeah definitely
0: this sounds really cool we never know right I mean rainforest part I would be a bit
1: you know, skeptical like okay fine I'll choose some nice like um, wooded forest in England that's much more doable I think, yeah, I think still so considering
0: like all the factors so yeah. I, I wish you you manage or, or even you know just like have you ever heard him speaking live actually? No. No, like I've, I know that his engagements are now like very limited. But just, yeah. This would be something cool. Thank you, Laura. No, this thank you. This was very inspiring oh, conversation. It was super fun. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of your <laughs> art. Actually, be sure to check out Laura's art and I will link it, uh, it. in the You're post. Stop it, you
1: too kind. Okay. <laughs> Okay, thanks a lot. <laughs>